students will sometimes ask the question, um, how old is God? It's a great question. And the answer to the question is, God doesn't have an age. He's ageless. He's timeless. He's eternal. The ancient of days has been around forever. Been around is not even a good way to say it. There's never been a time that he wasn't. And yet as ageless and timeless and eternal as God is, he's always doing something new. He does it all the time. There are a thousand stories in the Bible of how God is always doing something new. And tonight, I would like to direct your attention to the Old Testament book of Exodus. And if you take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 3, there's so many places you could look at this, this truth, but we're going to follow Moses around tonight. Remember him? He's one of my heroes. I love him. I've, I've loved him as long as I've been reading him. I'm one of those guys, I love the Old Testament as much as I love the New Testament. That's the honest truth. As a matter of fact, there's a lot in the New Testament you wouldn't fully understand if you didn't have an Old Testament. I don't love the Old Testament more, but I don't love the New Testament less. I, it, it's all, all 66 books are all, all the Word of God. And as you're making your way to Exodus chapter 3, if you haven't been there in a while, Genesis and then Exodus, it's pretty easy to find. As you're making your way to Exodus 3, I want to tell you about my ever-so-great-grandfather. His name was, was Adam Smith. I'm told that Adam had 13 sons. Actually, he had 14, but one of them died on the way across the ocean back in the 1700s when they came to America before it was America. Thirteen sons. That's a lot of sons. Abraham had a grandson. His name was Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. In the order, there was Reuben and there was Simeon. And then there was Levi and Judah and Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher. And there was Issachar and Zebulun and Joseph and Benjamin. Turn to the person beside you and give all the names, the 12 names of the sons of Joseph in the order. Real quick, just turn to someone. Just... I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think so. Levi, the priests came from his line. Jesus came from the line of who? Of Judah. The 11th son of Jacob, Joseph. He was a great guy, but his brothers hated him. He was young. He was still developing. His mind fully hadn't gotten quite fully matured, and he used to aggravate his brothers to death. And he, death. He, was, he was a little arrogant. Well, at times he was a lot arrogant. His brothers absolutely hated him. There was, that, there was that day that Joseph had gotten him to a boiling point, and the brothers decided they wanted to kill him. You remember the story. And had it not been for... Judah and Reuben, they would have killed him. But Judah and Reuben talked the rest of them into let's don't kill, let's don't kill our brother. Instead, they, they sold him into slavery to the Midianites. He goes down to Egypt. 17-year-old young man, and now he's a slave in a foreign country. He's a slave. He ends up Potiphar, captain of the bodyguard. But the Bible says that God was with him. Now, I hear the cynic. The cynic is going, yeah, God was with him. He's a slave. 
He's just been carried into a foreign land, and God is, is with him. But slavery wasn't the end of the story, was it? Getting ready to go deep. Say, going deep. I want you to hear what, what I'm getting ready to say. I, I sometimes have to remind myself that when life goes south, that's not the end of the story. You know what I'm saying? You sometimes have to be reminded, too, that when, when everything turns the wrong way, that is not the end of the story. And because God was with him, and it says that over and over when you read Joseph's story, and God was with him, and God was with him, and God was with him, and because God was with him, Joseph ends up second in command to Pharaoh himself, the most powerful man on the planet in the day. Joseph is second in command, which of course was no accident. God never has an accident. God puts Joseph in the Pharaoh's house for a multitude of reasons. And, and you're, a, you're a student of Scripture. You know this. God, whenever he does one thing, he does many things. God never does just one thing. You might be looking at that one thing, but you know since he's God, he's always doing multiple things simultaneously. And because of Joseph, nations were saved from a seven-year famine. And it was during the famine that God brought Joseph's father and brothers from the land of Israel down to the land of Egypt. Matter of fact, Jacob, who later was given the name Israel by God, he moves his entire family from Israel down to Egypt. He goes from famine to fortune. And Pharaoh puts him in the best land in Egypt, in the land of Goshen. No one but God could do that. No one but God would do that. And in Egypt, Israel grew and grew. The family tree grew and grew and grew. And they became large. And then they became very large. And then Israel became very, very large. And, and years passed. And Pharaoh, a new Pharaoh, ascended the throne. And that Pharaoh didn't know Joseph. That Pharaoh apparently didn't have any appreciation for history. And he didn't know the things that God had done and he didn't know Joseph and his story and Jacob and his story and he didn't appreciate the past history and he just looked at this huge population that was growing in the land of Goshen and, and he allowed fear and greed and prejudice to guide his thinking and as a result Pharaoh turned against Israel and you know the story he decided I will enslave them so he enslaved them Here's a whole nation now living in Goshen. Now they're slaves to Pharaoh. And years turned into decades, and decades turned into centuries. And people say, well, how, how long was Israel in, in slavery? And we could, we could imagine it this way. If you went all the way back to when the Mayflower sailed into Plymouth Harbor, if America became slave nation when Plymouth Harbor, when, when the Mayflower sailed into the Plymouth Harbor until this year, that's how long, if America was in slavery, that's how long Israel had been in slavery to Egypt. It was a long time. And they cried and they prayed and they, they, they worshiped and they, they sought and they, they, they tried not to lose hope and they, generation after generation after generation, slaves, hundreds of years passed. 
they're under the cruel whip of Egyptian slavery. And, and the Bible says that when the time was right, and here's the hard thing for us, only God determines when the time is right, right? I usually try to get him to speed it up. You know, we talk every day, and I've got some really good ideas, I think. And so I just pass those on because I know he listens. I mean, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, they're always listening. They love to have conversation with you. So we're talking, and I say, God, I've got this really good idea. He says, I don't know your idea. And if God doesn't know the idea, it's not a good idea. And so when, when the time was right, which means when God determined the time was right, he comes to this not-so-young, fugitive, outcast from justice, this man by the name of Moses, and he says to Moses, well, you're there, Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Go down to verse 9. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out? Verse 12, he said, but, but I will be with you. Isn't that beautiful? Look at that. I have seen, this is God talking. I've heard, I know, I've come down, I'll be with you. God's telling us something about himself, something that we always need to hear because I, like you, often hear people say things like, God's too busy to notice me. God has too many things to care about to care about the things that I care about. Have you heard this lately? I don't think God hears me when I pray. Have you heard that? This is what God says. This is what the Almighty says. You have his word on it. You have his promises on it. This is what God says. And th this book is eternal. The original text, message from God that doesn't end just on planet earth. I mean, this is eternal. This book doesn't even close in heaven one day when you get there. It's eternal. You know, the grass fades, the flower withers, but the word of the Lord will stand. What's that word? Forever. This is what God says. God says, I have seen, I have heard, I know, so I've come down. Right. It's always good when God comes down. And God lets Moses know what he's up against. As a matter of fact, later on in chapter 3, down around verse 19 and 20, here's what God says to Moses. He says, he says, I know that the king of Israel will not allow you to go, even under force from a strong hand. But when I stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles that I will perform in it, after that, he will let you go. 
Sounding good so far. And then Moses hears that part of the plan that he's not so thrilled with about that part where God says, and by the way, Moses, I am sending you. But God, 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 what, 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 God? And, and Moses puts up his, his five objections. You can, you can read them for yourself. Matter of fact, later on in this week, you will read them for yourself. But Moses, he puts up these objections. And finally, with great reluctance, he says, okay, yes, I'll, I'll go. I love this little verse. It's tucked away in Exodus chapter 4. It's verse 20. You look at it and you see if, if you notice it. Now, I know this is a children's picture on the screen, but, but it captures the point. Look at the verse, verse 20 of chapter 4. Moses took his wife and his sons, and he put them on a donkey, and he started back to Egypt, and he took the staff of God in his hand. Does that do it for you yet? Well, no, that doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't sound too good. People, people read that and they go, now, wait a minute. Here's an 80-year-old man, a fugitive from justice. Egypt's FBI has been after him. The State Bureau of Investigation has been after him. They've been, they've been looking for him for a long time. He, he murdered a guy back in Egypt trying to protect an Israelite. And, and, and so now he's out here in the desert. He's been out here for a long time. Now he's 80 years old. He's an 80-year-old man. And he's got his wife. He's got his two sons. Put him on a donkey. And people are going, that's what you're headed to Egypt with? That's what you're going to face the most powerful man on the planet with? And if CNN had a satellite above and it was looking down, and NBC, ABC, CBS, if all of them were looking down on this, they, they'd laugh, they would shake their head. They'd say, you're going against the most powerful man on the planet. You got your donkey, you got your wife, you got your two sons, you got that stick in your hand. You're... But see, what, what they don't see, you see. Because there's another person in the picture. His initials are G-O-D. Matter of fact, that, that stick, that rod, that staff, it represents the God of glory. It represents the God of hope. It represents the God of miracles. It represents the God of power. It represents the true God. It represents the God who is God. And that God is going with him. So God tells Moses... I want you to go, and, and Pharaoh's not going to do what you tell him. He's not going to do what I'm demanding unless he's forced by a strong hand. And do you remember how Pharaoh was forced by a strong hand? You remember? What was it? Plagues. Ten of them. The number 10 is a significant number in biblical numerology. It represents fullness of quantity. In other words, in our English language, we would say that the 10 Egyptian plagues means that Pharaoh was completely plagued. You start in chapter 7 of verse Exodus and they start rolling on. There's the Nile turns to blood. There's the plague of the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the livestock in the field, the boils, the hail, the lightning, the fire, the locusts, the darkness. Finally, there's the death of the firstborn. There's this pattern that comes up over and over again. Moses goes to Pharaoh and Moses says, Pharaoh, here's what God says. God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I'll give you a word that, that rhymes with Go. Moses answers, no. And Pharaoh bristles and he stiffens his will and he hardens his heart and he says, I will not. And God sends a plague. Plague's over. Moses comes back. God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. Stiffens, 
bristles his heart, his will, hardens his heart, says no, God sends a plague. The Bible says Pharaoh hardened his heart. People go, well, what exactly does that mean? It means the same thing when God comes to us and says thus and such, and we go. Sometimes we don't say no to God. We, we go, hmm, hmm. Or we, we try to talk him out of his idea. Because, of course, you know, we know better because our ways are so much higher than his ways. Our ways are so much better than his ways, the Bible says. Is that what your Bible says? No, your Bible, God says, my ways are higher than your ways. My way. And, and, and so Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. It, it's the exact same thing when God tells us and we say, I'm not going to do that. Or we rebel and we stiffen our necks. We brace our will against God and we say no to him. That, that never works out good. It, it, it never does. You get to Exodus chapter 7 and, and it starts describing the 10 plagues. And when I was a kid growing up in church, I, I just kind of thought they were random. Why would God do that? I could, I could think of something bigger and badder and meaner than gnats. Why would God do that? And then I began to look and I saw there really is. There's a deliberate, crystal clear, laser focused message, a very well thought out strategy of what God is doing. And remember, for the second time, whenever God does one thing, he's doing many things. And people will say, well, you know, the plagues were about getting Israel out of Egypt. And that is true, but that's not all the truth. That's, that's not all that God is doing. I started looking and I noticed some other things that God was doing. Like, for instance, when God comes to Pharaoh and says what he says, one of the things God is doing to Pharaoh and to the Egyptian people, he's, at, he's extending grace. God extends grace to this pagan, arrogant man and his pagan, arrogant... Isn't it interesting to you that God says... Moses, go ask Pharaoh. Matter of fact, in chapter 5, verse 3, say please. God doesn't normally say please. But in this situation, he did. Moses, go, go, go say to Pharaoh, please. And, and, and so God gives grace and he gives opportunity to do the right thing. And Pharaoh chooses not to listen to God. But in every case, God's a gentleman. In every case, God quietly knocks very gently. Pharaoh won't budge. Not only does he not budge, but his first response to Moses, his first conversation is, I'm going to make it harder on Israel. And so he makes it harder on Israel. People would go, oh man, God sure was mean to poor old Pharaoh. No, it wasn't. He showed him grace after grace after grace after grace. Showed him kindness. Pharaoh snubs God. Another thing that I notice in the story is it's a powerful preview of the end of time. Meaning, when you look at Exodus, it's a preview of what God's going to do at the end of the world. You can read it in Revelation. The plagues of Revelation bear a striking resemblance to what was taking place in the Exodus, but the Exodus is a dress rehearsal in miniature of what the end of time is going to be like. I'm glad as a child of God, we're not going to have to face that. God, another thing that's happening, God is he's judging Israel's paganism and her cult worship of all these multitude of gods, but at the same time, God is saying to Egypt and to the people of Egypt, I am God. I am the one true God. You can trust me. 
And, and he's trying to draw, draw Egypt to himself. Guys, this is, is, is a powerful, huge part of history. Um, you know that, is, uh, that Egypt had thousands of gods. And every one of these 10 plagues specifically goes after, targets, challenges the primary gods of the Egyptians. Pharaoh boasts to Moses, Moses, who is this God? I don't know it. When God showed up, do you think he started to know him? Pharaoh gets his question answered. When God introduces his judgment and his power to a rebellious spirit, you don't want to be on that side of it. <laughs> when God introduces his judgment and his power to a rebellious spirit. But that's where Pharaoh was. Another thing that God was doing in the stories is, is he's seeking to draw Egypt to himself. You look at these plagues and, and they're packaged in groups. There's, there's life versus death. There's liberty versus bondage and defeat. There's light versus darkness. The, the plagues are fought on three battlefields, earth, water, sky, land. Each plague is an exposure and a judgment against the gods of Egypt. It's, it's an incredible story. People, your God is God. My God is God. Look at somebody and say, my God is God. But you got to say it with conviction. I mean, you can't be this monotone. Look at somebody and say, my God is God. Like, true or false, there is only one God. It's true. There's only one. How do you know that? Because the book says it. Isaiah 45. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. The God who knows everything, who's everywhere, who's been here forever plus some, the eternal ages, the ancient of days, the one who's been here forever. He says, he says, this is in Isaiah 44. Is there a God besides me? I don't know of any. If there was, he would know it. Because there's not anything he doesn't know. And the God who never lies, the God who knows everything, omniscience, the God who is everywhere at all times, omnipresent, the God who is all-powerful and all-knowing, he says, I don't know of any other gods out there. He says, there's not any other God. I'm, I'm it. Isaiah 46, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. Psalm 95, Psalm 96, verse 5, for, the, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord is the one who made the heavens. Amen. Pharaoh says, Moses, who's your God? Moses says, well, let me tell you about him. Pharaoh says, don't want to listen to him, not going to do what he says. Pharaoh won't listen, so enter plague one. Now, relax, because, Mike, you're not, you're not going to go through all ten plagues tonight, are you? If I say I'm not going to do that, you can go, hey, man, I'm not going to do that. But let's look at a couple of them, because it's, it's real, all of them are important. Every one of them is of great importance. The last one is the most important of all. But, but, but the first plague, what was the first plague? Do you remember? The Nile was turned to Blood. God wasn't really, I mean, God wasn't merely revealing his power to Egypt and to his people. He was also challenging the gods of Egypt. He was saying to the Egyptian people, I alone am God. 
and your gods are powerless before me. For example, there's probably never been, from the earliest time till today, there's never been a, a nation that was more dependent upon a river from ancient of times as was Egypt. And the great Nile River flowed for hundreds of miles through Egypt. And, and hardly any country in ancient times was so dependent on that waterway. You take away the Nile River and Egypt would have been a desert. And the Egyptians recognized this. And the Egyptians wrote hymns to the Nile. We sing hymns of faith and praise to our God. Egypt sang hymns of faith and praise to the Nile to their gods, gods of fertility, gods of prosperity, gods of blessing, gods of happiness. So God took on Egypt's gods. When you see these plagues, they're not just trying to get Pharaoh's attention. For instance, go over to chapter 7 of Exodus, chapter 7, verse 15. God tells Pharaoh, God tells Pharaoh, God tells Moses, verse, verse 15, chapter 7, Go to Pharaoh in the morning, and when you see him walking out to the water, stand ready to meet him by the bank of the what? By the bank of the... Moses meets Pharaoh where? By the river, by, by Nile. Well, well, what's Pharaoh doing down by the river? He's doing what he often did down by the river. He by himself, or sometimes with his entourage, they would go down to the river and they would call out to their gods. There were many of them. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and hundreds of gods. And you'd go down to the river. They would go down to the river. They'd call out to their god. That's hard to say when you're a southern boy from North Carolina. But the god's name was. It's, um, it's hard to say in English, but it's K-H-U. I mean K-H-N-U-M. That's hard to say in English. K-H-N-U-M. You try it. That was it. You try it. You're just laughing at me. You try it. Try to say. Oh, come on. I'm embarrassing myself in front of you. You can embarrass yourself in front of somebody else. Look at somebody and say. That was the name of the God. He was the guardian of the source of the Nile. What was his name? Oh, that's good. That's good. He was one of the many thousands of gods that were out there. There was, there was Happy and there was Isis, the god and the goddess of the Nile. One of the most powerful of the gods was Osiris. And Osiris was god of the underworld. And the Egyptians believed that, that the Nile was the bloodstream of Osiris. So think about this. If the Nile is Osiris's bloodstream... And now the Nile is turned to blood. That means God and Osiris fought it out. And the blood of Osiris flowed for all to see. Don't miss the point. The God of Jacob, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the creator of all. He did battle against e Egypt's gods, and now Egypt's gods are dead, and, and the blood flows all through. You can see the God, well, there's three of them there in the picture. The one on the left, the one that's standing there, and then there's one behind him. The river turns to blood. You can't imagine the horror that the Egyptians felt when they 
looked across the land and Osiris, the great god of the underworld, one of the most powerful gods of Egypt, was now dead. She'd been destroyed. And in that, in that river there was also, well you see the tall one standing there, the tall idol. That was the crocodile god. His name was Happy. Maybe he's happy because there's a big smile on his teeth coming out of his face. I don't know why they called him happy, but he was the crocodile god. And, and crocodiles were enshrined. Matter of fact, crocodiles were mummified like the pharaohs were. When, when you get to Exodus, you remember when Pharaoh was trying to wipe out um, Israel, one of the first things that he said was, you go and throw all the male Hebrew babies in, where did he say throw them? into the Nile, into the river. Why? That wasn't just to kill them. That was because they, he was wanting them to sacrifice their children, their babies, to the crocodile god, happy. So the crocodile god, when God goes to war, all of a sudden the crocodile god, he can't fight and win against this great god of Israel. Osiris cannot fight against. God takes them on. God after God, battle after battle. Moses goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. Second plague. The frogs. You, you, you saw him up there, the one on the left. His name was Hecht. H-E-Q-T. Hecht. He was the Egyptian god that was half frog and part woman. Kind of reminds me of a girl that I used to date in high school. Not, not the woman I married, but Hecht was the, was the frog god. If you lived in Egypt in that day, frogs and toads were sacred. I mean, if you stepped on one and killed it, you could experience capital punishment. You know, when I was a kid growing up, we went frog gigging. Anybody here gone frog gigging? All of you need that experience at least one time in your life. But you, you didn't grow up. No one went frog gigging in Egypt. Because they were sacred. All of a sudden, this plague hits Egypt. And there are these frogs everywhere. I know part of it was when the Nile goes to blood, the frogs leave the river. But that wasn't all of it. That was part of it, but that wasn't, that wasn't all of it. But, but you can hear the Egyptians crying out, Oh, heck! Oh, heck! Which is, by the way, that's where we get the phrase, Oh, heck! Oh, heck! <laughs> no. And they cried, Oh, heck! Oh, heck! Please deliver us from the God, the lesser God of Israel. Oh, heck! Show yourself powerful. Show yourself mighty. Deliver us from the God of Jacob. Frogs go everywhere. They know, the people of Egypt know, oh, we lost that one too. The frogs, the frogs everywhere. Why? Because God is in control and God is God. And, and, and the frogs are everywhere like a blanket of filth across the land. These, these slimy monstrosities, they, they just cover everything. And the people are trying to walk around and not step on them because, you know, if you step on them, they kill them. But, but, but they're, they're everywhere and they're slick and they're slimy. They're, they're gross little creatures. And, and, and sometimes when you're trying to walk across them, you, you actually step on one. Your foot goes one way, your other foot goes the other way. Then you fall in them and, and they're on your face. And, and it's, it's nasty. There's frogs everywhere. So you go to take a Bath. You, you get in your bathtub and you look and there's frogs in there. And there's all that stuff that comes out of the frogs. 
it's nasty. I, I decided not to show you the video, but I'm just, I'm just saying the people of Egypt, they were overwhelmed with these frogs and, and what comes out of the frogs, and they were everywhere, and the people of, of Egypt knew the God of Jacob has defeated our gods. Moses goes back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh wouldn't budge. He shook his fist in the face of God. And, and then in chapter 9, God says to Moses, Moses, go to Pharaoh. Tell him this time. Just tell him this time. Pharaoh, you either let my people go or I'm going to come at you with a plague that is going to annihilate the economy. It's going to devastate your livelihood. Pharaoh shakes his fist again in the face of God. Look at Exodus 9, verses 1 through 7. Exodus chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. The Lord says to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let them go and you keep holding them, then the Lord's hand will bring a severe plague against your livestock in the fields. The horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herd, the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all the Israelites own will die. And the Lord set a time saying tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. Verse 6, and the Lord did this the next day. All the Egyptian livestock died. But none among the Israelite livestock died. Pharaoh sent messengers who saw not a single one of the Israelite livestock was dead. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he did not let the people go. Livestock. In that day, like in India today, the cattle were sacred. The horses were sacred. The, the bulls were sacred. If you went to Egypt today, you would find some of the sacred tombs of the bulls. There's this, there's this tomb, um, 64 different rooms in it. Sarcophaguses, 12 by 9 by 6, burial chambers. Each one of them has a, has a bull in it. The bulls were sacred, sacred to the god Ta. You're laughing because I'm saying it the best I can. It's a P-T-A-H. Ta. That was the name of the god. He was the one who protected and blessed with the livestock. And now all the livestock are dead. When, when God comes and says, I am God, and he fights against the gods of Egypt, the people in Egypt in that day knew exactly what was happening. All of these gods, all of these deities that they worshipped were powerless against the God who is God. And now they look and their livestock is dead. Hathor, the, the goddess of love and beauty, she was represented as a, as a cow. Don't ask me, I don't know why. I mean, a cow, it's... Um, they got pretty eyes. I don't know that. There's this all-out war. And then in chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9, there's, there's a change in the wording of the biblical account. It, it changes and it goes from Pharaoh hardened his heart to God hardened his heart, which means that God, knowing this unrepentant, unyielding, stubborn heart that would not listen 
God just gave Pharaoh over to his own will and to the consequences of his own decisions. That's a pretty big deal with God. What people do in our day, we go, God, I want you to leave me alone. Let me have free will. Let me do what I want to do. God, here is what I want. Here is what I demand. Here's what I want to do. And, and we like the free will part. Sometimes we want God to let us do what we want to do. What we don't like are the consequences that go with our decisions. I, I know none of us in here are guilty. We're talking about people that are watching online, right? We're not. We're, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm just saying we, we want to do what we often want to do, but what we don't want is we don't want the consequences of our decisions. We, we love free will. We don't like the consequences of our decisions. So when it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, what it, what it literally means is when God squeezed Pharaoh's heart, what came out what, what was what was already inside. In other words, God pulled out of Pharaoh's heart what was already inside his heart. In other words, God didn't put rebellion in Pharaoh's heart. God just squeezed it and what came out, what was already there. You can't, you can't blame God for Pharaoh's evil heart any more than you could blame God for Hitler's evil heart. It's, it's a fascinating story. True or false? Life works so much better when I go with God than when I go against him. So I'm going with God. And you're going with God, right? You're going with God. You're going with the one who is the lion from the tribe of Judah, the one who is the ancient of days, the one who is the resurrection and the life, the one who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You're going to the one who's the almighty deliverer. You're going to the one who is the rock, the good shepherd. You're going with the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. You're going with that God. Because life always works out better when I go with God than when I go against Him. But again, it's, it's not just about me. So often in our Christian walk, we, we, we're always looking in the mirror. We're always looking at ourselves. We're always looking at what can God do for me. And part of the joy of life is, God, how can I live my life in such a way that when people look at me, they see you. And they can look at me and they would glorify you. Because God, ultimately, it ain't about me. It is about you. God did not do what he did in Egypt just so the people of Egypt would go, man, those Israelites sure are great people, aren't they? No, he did what he did so that Egypt and Israel and the whole world, and the whole world did know, by the way, that the great God of Israel stood up in Egypt, declared himself as God, showed himself as God, and the whole world took notice. Because it's always about the glory of God. It's always about the goodness of God. It's, it's always about us living our lives in such a way that he receives the praise and he receives the attention. Might be a good verse maybe over there in Matthew chapter 5. I'd stick it around maybe somewhere around verse 16 that we would let our light so shine before men that they would see our good works and they would glorify our Father who is in heaven. My mind goes back to a great man. He was a great missionary. You know his name. We talk about his name around here sometimes. His name was Adoniram Judson. He was serving over in Burma. This particular time, he, he found himself in a prison cell. 32 pounds of chains wrapped around him. Chained to a bamboo pole. Why was he in prison? Because 
he was a follower of God. And they tried to imprison his faith. Still do that, by the way. All over the world in a lot of places. But, but he's, he's in prison. He's chained to that bamboo pole. And, and uh, one of the prisoners that was in there, he was a mocking cynic. And he, he looks at Adoniram Judson with a sneer on his face. And he said, and I quote, Dr. Judson, what about the prospect of the conversion of the heathen now? Judson's reply was instant. He said, the prospects are just as bright as the promises of God. Repeat after me. God honors faith and faith honors God. And the God who purchased you is the same God who will provide for you. And you and I would say, I am going to follow that God. You got homework. Homework? We got homework. Because tonight, I left you right in the middle of the story. You know, we preachers, we don't normally do that. We normally tell the story. We kind of wrap it up in a bow and, 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 and try to seal it. So when you walk out, you know the end of the story. But I, I purposefully, I didn't want to tell you the end of the story. Th th those 15 chapters in Exodus are absolutely magnificent in every way. And, and your homework assignment is between now and this coming Sunday morning. Now and this coming Sunday morning, before you come to church Sunday morning, read Exodus chapters 1, chapters 1 through 15. Now the highlight, the crescendo, the climax of it is over there in Exodus chapter 12. The Passover that points to the Christ, to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know that passage where the blood is applied to the door and God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. He's not just talking about what happened in Egypt that night. He's talking about what Jesus was going to do on Calvary for us so that when God looks at me, he sees the blood of his son. And I don't have to worry about death. And I don't have to worry about forever because I'm a child of the king because of the blood of the king. It's there in Exodus chapter 12. So your homework assignment, Exodus chapters 1 through 15, between now and this coming Sunday morning. Pray with me if you would. Father, in this place tonight, we are in absolute awe of who you are and what you are and how you work in all of history to stand up on behalf of your people, to stand up as the God who is God, that the world would come to know you and have a relationship with you. Father, I pray that in these days as we open this book again and as we read about you and what you have done and what you are bringing to pass, I pray, God, that we would see those same things that you were doing and have done and will continue to do in our lives. And that, Lord, we would live a faith that shines and shouts that in my life I will glorify the King who is King. I thank you, Father, for your faithful love. I thank you that you chase us and you never stop chasing us. You love us and you never quit loving us. Lord, you provide and, and, and you're never empty. I thank you for grace. I thank you for forgiveness, for redemption. I thank you that you have placed your Son in our lives. That we could be children of God. So God, help us to live like it. Help us to love like it. Help us to live our faith and to love our faith. Help us to share our faith with others that they might come to know and love the one that we know. 
Thank you for this chance together tonight to open this sacred book. I pray that you continue to teach us in these days just how precious this book that we hold in our laps is and how it directs us, our thinking, how it directs our hearts, our wills, how it shines a spotlight on the one who is glory and the one who is glorious. And until that day that we see you face to face, God, we pray, we pray that we would live our lives in such a way that God receives the glory. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Thank you so much for this night, for the time that you've given us together in this sacred place, and for what you've said, how you have spoken to us. We praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.